0: I'll be reading from Genesis uh, 32 uh, 22 through thirty-first. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent all he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the, the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name is no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with the humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do do you ask my name? Then blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared. The sun arose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip.
1: Well, again, welcome everyone. Uh, It's good to have you. It's so nice to see you. Maybe, you know, we, we did a survey recently, and people were like, we kind of like an in-service greeting time. But here's the thing. I'm an introvert, so that's the most terrifying thing I can imagine. So just give your neighbor a little wave. It's like a little wave. Don't talk to him. Don't, don't say a word. Don't touch him. Just a little wave. All right, we're warming our way into it. I'm getting used to it. We're trying to figure this thing out together. Maybe that'll scratch the greeting itch for a while. <laughs> we are in a series entitled "I Am Not," and we have, over the last couple of weeks, been exploring our identity. What does it mean to be us? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be an image bearer? What does it mean to be a person created by God who's trying to pursue wholeness and life in Christlikeness? What does it mean to be us? And what we have said is that identity is, in a simple kind of way, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. It's the stories that we've inherited. It's the stories that maybe our family of origin told over us. It's the stories that maybe we've learned or earned from experiences, some victories, some failures. And all those stories sort of get wrapped up into the mire of, Of our identity. And so when you open the anthology of Johnny, you see a series of different stories that have been internalized. Some that I've earned, some that I've received, some that have been spoken over me since I was a kid, some that I'm not even sure how they got there, but are there. Our identity is a series of stories, narratives that we tell ourselves. And if you open up that anthology of stories, what you will find is that some of those stories are really beautiful. Some of the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves are rooted in truth and goodness and beauty. It is a beautiful story to reflect that we are made in God's image. That is wonderful. But often when we open up the anthology of our lives to hear and rehearse and re-narrate the stories that are within it, some of them are not as beautiful. Some of them feel pretty painful pretty small, pretty reductionistic, or sometimes they just feel like stories that maybe we have outgrown and are trying to leave behind but keep following us into the future. And so what we have done throughout this series and what we are continuing to do is to try to open up that book of our lives and look at those stories and say, some of these are true, some of them are small, and some of them are lies that have been written over us. Not all the stories that we have inherited about ourselves are true, and so we want to confront those false or small or outdated or painful stories with the truth of who God says we are, the truth of our story in him. We started this series in the book of Genesis with the very first human story, which says that Humans are made in the image of God, communally, to reflect God, to be like God, and to be in relationship with God. And then we talked about how that story gets supplanted by a lie about human identity, that you are not enough, that you have work to do, scarcity mindset and mentality about your identity that gets worked into its story. Then Heather talked about the lie of not feeling or being enough. The kind of shame narratives that can come with that. And then two weeks ago, we had a guest preacher named Michelle, who was awesome, from Imago. What a gift to have her. And she talked about the story of our image from the Old Testament story of Judah and Tamar and what that image story is and how that image story can be transformed into something beautiful. And today, we are kind of putting up our final teaching installment in this series. We're going to be in it next week, uh, but next week will be really cool. We're going to hear from members of the community. It'll be a service led by our guiding team. I'm really excited about that because you can't really talk about identity from one guy on a stage. Like you've got to hear from the people in the community who are living this out. So that'll be next week. But this week is our final installment in this series, and we're going to look at the Old Testament story of Jacob. If you know the ultimate story, Jacob is kind of a big deal. He's the father of Israel, in a way, the founding father of Israel. His name gets turned to Israel in the story we just heard. And from his line, we get the tribes that become Israel. The story that Michelle preached through is like the story of one of his children. And, Abraham, and Jacob's a big deal. Like, if you're, sometimes if you're reading the Bible, there'll be this phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? He's that kind of big deal. We talk about God through this person. And I love the story of Jacob. I absolutely love this story because it is weird and it is complicated and it sounds just like my story. It is hard and strange and weird and it is the story of deception and mistakes and growth and healing in transformation. In Jacob's story, he tries to run from his past and himself only to find himself and God in the process. I love Jacob's story so much because it feels like the human story, that if we're honest about our own experiences, our own lives, it kind of looks like Jacob's story. It's a story of contending for our identity, It's a story of sometimes having to wrestle with the narratives that have been given to us, sometimes having to wrestle with the stories that our family of origin handed us, a story of sometimes having to wrestle with the story of mistakes or embarrassment, contending with our past and our present and our future, and even God so that we can find a new name that describes who we are, holy and holy. This is the story of becoming who we are intended to be. Now there's a lot to Jacob's story, so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of break it up narratively into three different acts. Then act one of Jacob's story will be his past. We're going to set some stage, build some drama, create some tension, you know, any good movie process. So here we go. Jacob's story begins right out the gate. It's wild. Here's Jacob's birth story. Here we go. This is from Genesis, talking about Jacob's mom. It says, When she reached the end of her pregnancy, she discovered that she had twins. The first child came out red all over, clothed with hair, so she named him Esau, which means hairy. Immediately afterward, his brother came out gripping Esau's heel, and she named him Jacob, which means supplanter or deceiver. The naming logic here is wild. One baby is red and hairy, and they're like, you know what? We'll call him Harry. Then the next baby comes out holding Esau's heel, and you're like, you know what? We'll name him supplanter. Right out the gate, before he's had a chance to poop, Jacob receives an identity story. He is deceiver, supplanter, heel grabber. What a wild thing to write over a child. What a wild story to tell a kid who's just emerged into the world. Hi, little hairy one. Hello, deceiver of nations. (laughs) Jacob's story is intense, but I think we do this all the time. And have had this done to us all the time. Kids, from the time they are born, get identity stories that they didn't write. They had no hand in making. Eldest children are often given a narrative that they are required to carry expectations, to care for their younger siblings. My wife and I often joke that she has real eldest daughter energy. If you're an eldest daughter, you know what that means. There's a story to that. You were responsible. That you have your life together. And so often, what often that means is that because you have your life together, no one assumes that it could ever fall apart. And so you tend not to get checked in with as much because, oh, well, she has her life together. She's responsible. We'll deal with the younger one. Another common one is the only child story. I've seen this used to confirm expectations of all sorts. A kid shares their toys easily, and they're like, wow, there's no competition at home. He's an only child. Kid doesn't share. And you're like, he's an only child. He's selfish. I asked our staff at Missio what stories they think about in this way. And there were so many good examples. Talk about gifted children, wild children, kids who are named flirts, kids who are told you're going to be just like your father or just like your mother, kids of divorce who are labeled broken before they have a chance to show how whole they are, kids with certain zip codes who are written off before they've even moved. I called my mom on the phone, and I was like, hey, uh, what story was written over me when I was a kid? And she was, you know, she's my mom, so she's going to be really nice. And she she paused for a second. She was like, well, people said you were (laughs) strong-willed. I was like, I think I know what that means. You probably have your own. A story that you inherited, a story that was written over you. And not all of those stories are bad. Some of them are beautiful. Some of them are encouraging. Some of them are life-giving. But often those stories establish a set of expectations around us. Both for how we're perceived, how people treat us, and how we are going to be interpreted as we navigate the world around us. Words have power that I don't think we often give credit to when we speak them over the life of a child. This girl has her life together, so we don't need to check on her. Well, that easily becomes, I need to keep my life together so no one ever has to take responsibility for me because I'm always responsible for everyone around me. You know. Jacob's story begins with him receiving a story. And what is tricky, I think, about Jacob's story and what I really love about his episode is that he receives this story right at birth and then his home life encourages him to live into it. So these expectations are established around him and then the people in his life, the loved ones in his life, they encourage him to live into that story. As we keep reading Jacob's story, we learn that his father loves his older brother and his mother loves him. The family establishes rivalry between the brothers. If you want a blessing, you're going to have to be a supplanter, Jacob. If you want to get your place in this family, well, you have an older brother to overcome. And if you know the biggest, most famous story of Jacob's deception, it's when he tricks his brother and his father into receiving his brother's inheritance that is orchestrated by his mother a wild home dynamic. You get this story, you're told you're a supplant, and then your mother's like, you know what we should do together? We should supplant your brother and father. That's the culture of this environment. Your family of origins gives you a story and then perpetuates it and encourages it and invites you to live into it. And Jacob does. He does live into that story. In Act 1, the two big moments of his life that we see and are recorded in Scripture are moments of deception and manipulation. He tricks Esau out of his birthright, and then he and his mother trick Esau and their father Isaac into making Jacob the receptor of the inheritance. So Jacob is called the supplanter, named a manipulator. His family of origin encourages that kind of life, and then he does he lives into it. Jacob's story is complicated. This is why I like it so much, because it feels so human and so relatable. He gets a story that sets the expectations around him. His family of origins then encourage that set of expectation, and then he lives into it. If there is not something for you in there, then I don't know that you're breathing, Some of us have inherited a story. Some of us have a story from a dysfunctional family, and some of us have earned our own story through mistakes. And they carry with us, just like Jacob. The final moment of Jacob's act one is that big moment of deception where he tricks his brother and he tricks his father. And when Esau, his older brother, the hairy one, finds out what has happened, he is enraged, so to say, and he threatens to kill Jacob. And so Jacob runs. He runs from his family. He runs from his mistakes. Maybe he even running a bit from himself. But then something he does not expect happens. As Jacob is on the road running away from his family, he runs directly into an encounter with God. On the road, Jacob has a dream And it's wild. He sees angels descending and ascending. And it's meant to be this image of God's presence. Like God is with you, Jacob. God is here in this moment. In the dream, God tells Jacob, I'm going to be with you. I'll be near you. You're running from home and I am coming with you. Wherever you go, I will be. It's a beautiful moment that marks something in Jacob's life. But I love what happens next because when Jacob wakes up, he offers a vow to God. And I absolutely love this because I think it just is such a perfect picture of his story. He says this to God. If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I can return safely someday to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and all that you give me I will give the 10th, Jacob has had an encounter with God in his story. He wakes up, and what is the very first thing that he does? Bargains. Of course he does has learned to do his entire life is to bargain and to negotiate and to steal. You think that leaves us when we start entering into a relationship with God? No. Our identity stories, even our attachment styles, map themselves onto the divine that we're trying to relate to. And so Jacob comes into this relationship with God, and it's like, okay, if you protect me, then I'll tithe. Here's who Jacob is his story. Yes, he's had this beautiful encounter with God, but he's still operating out of that identity story. This is act 1 of Jacob's story. Running from his past and the story that he's inherited. And it marks the first like season of Jacob's life, like his early adulthood birth to early adulthood. Act 2 comes in the next 20 years of Jacob's life. He has this vision, this encounter, this moment with God, and then he makes it into this new land. And then his life kind of looks pretty normal, honestly. Finds a job, gets married, gets married again. That's normal in the Old Testament world. Has just a grip of kids. That's also pretty normal in the Old Testament It's the kind of regular movement of your life in your 30s to your 40s, right? He's developing, he's growing, he's getting a job, he's finding a vocation. And in this process, he comes to work for his uncle Laban. And we learn in the next 20 years of Jacob's life that uncle Laban is more deceptive and even more manipulative than Jacob is. Jacob makes a deal with Laban to work seven years for a wife, and it ends up being a trick. So he works 14 years for two wives, not what you expected. Then Jacob makes a deal to work for some sheep, but Laban hides like a bunch of the sheep that Jacob is supposed to be working for. So Jacob works another six years to try to build his own flock. All in all, he gets tricked into 20 years, 20 years of labor for Laban. Jacob ran from his past and himself, and I think this is really beautiful, directly into himself. Jacob is manipulative. He is deceptive. He tricks his brother out of his inheritance. And who does he come to work for? Someone who is more skilled at the game than he is. Laban becomes like a mirror for Jacob. A reflection of those difficult, tricky problematic, sinful things within Jacob that need to get worked on. Those parts of his story that are painful and hard and enclosing. It's one of those things that God does that, honestly, kind of suck. God uses things that are difficult around us to uproot difficulty in us. When I was younger, I could be a lot like Jacob. I think it's maybe why I like this story the most, is I just relate to him as a character. And I mean that in the worst of ways. I could be manipulative, and I could be deceptive. A nice way of describing it would be, I was strong-willed and persuasive. That's how my mom would say it. And in college, I got my very first church job, and I worked for a man that I really respected, a person I loved honored, just thought the world of. He was smart and driven and a lot like me. Strong-willed and persuasive. And I was pumped about this job. So I got all my friends involved and we did really cool things. It was not, the experience was enriching. I got all my friends involved. We launched ministries. It was such a good learning experience for me. But in that time, all my friends starting to get hurt. It was like one by one, every single one of them got hurt and left that environment. And they all described it the exact same way. They were stonewalled, they were run over, they felt lied to. Each of them encountered the kind of unrestrained will of an authority figure and that point where persuasion becomes something dangerous, you know? And near the end of my time in that job, I remember hearing so clearly, it's like one of those moments where you're like, oh yeah, God is saying something and I have to pay attention. I remember it so clearly. I was like, I had maybe like six months left in the role that I was in. And I remember God being like, that's you, dog. This thing that you're working with, this like person you're interacting with, that's you in 15 years if you don't do some work. This is a mirror to reveal something inside of you that, yeah, you're strong-willed and persuasive, and you put that in an unrestrained authority figure, you're going to abuse everyone to do some work. It was like a Laban and Jacob kind of moment. A mirror to reveal what was at work in me. And that was hard, and that was difficult, but I will say It was a grace, and it never felt like shame. I don't feel like that's what was happening in that moment. It felt like God was inviting me into freedom. This is how the Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians. It says this really beautiful thing to the church in Corinth. He says, The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Lord's Spirit is, there is freedom. All of us are looking with unveiled faces at the glory of the Lord as if we are looking in a mirror. And we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Identity, if it's anything, is a journey of becoming who God made us to be. Our stories are not fixed. Our lives are not fixed. Our problems and our difficulties are not fixed. We have earned some things. We've earned some stories. We have inherited some stories. We've inherited some things in our identity and even earned some of them. But that story is not fixed. It is not finished. It is not over yet. God is at work within us, transforming us from one degree of glory to the next, from one degree of freedom to the next, so that we are whole and holy. Jacob has this experience, 20 years of wrestling and contending with himself. And after 20 years of working with Laban and confronting himself, God tells Jacob, It's time to go home, which is the beginning of Act 3. That has got to be an absolutely terrifying moment. But Jacob is older. He's wiser. He's done some hard work. He's confronted himself. But now God is calling him to go home, back to his past. Who knows how that's going to go? Last time he saw his hairy brother, he wanted to kill him. Who knows what Esau will do now? But Jacob goes. He gathers his family. He gathers his stuff, his herds, his flock. There's actually one more trick that he plays in there. You know, he's still working himself out a little bit. There's some things to do. But then he starts heading back. And he sends messengers ahead of him to Esau. And I love this detail that the writer of Genesis includes. This is Genesis 32, verse 6 through 7. Jacob sends messengers out to Esau, and the messengers returned to Jacob and said, "Uh, So we went to your brother, and he's coming here to meet you with 400 men. Jacob felt terrified, and I love this word trapped. I would too. here's that test though, right? Jacob has done this work. He's been confronting himself. He's been healing and growing and transforming, hopefully. And then all of a sudden, he's in this moment where his past is about to meet him, and he feels terrified and trapped. And when we feel terrified and trapped, that is the moment we are most likely to revert back to the old stories of identity. It's when I'm most likely to pull on that old, strong-willed, persuasive skill that I've been trying to work on. But here's what Jacob does. And I think, like the prayer that came before, this moment is such a beautiful testament to the kind of work and kind of healing that is happening in Jacob's life. Jacob hears this news of his brother coming, and Jacob begins to pray. And it's the first recorded prayer since he fled Esau in the first place. But notice how different this prayer is. Genesis 32, verse nine, Jacob begins to pray. He says, Lord, God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, who said to me, go back to your country and to your relatives and I'll make sure things go well for you. I don't deserve how loyal and truthful, you have been to your servant. I went away across the Jordan with just my staff, but now I have become two camps. Save me from my brother Esau. I am afraid that he will kill me, my mother, the mothers and the children who are with me. But you are the one who told me that I will make sure things go well for you and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea. I love this prayer in contrast to the one that we got earlier because there is no bargaining or negotiating in this moment with Jacob. The language is personal. This is his God, not someone else's. And it's honest. And honesty might be the most important indicator that we are becoming who we are supposed to be, that we are honest with ourselves. That we are honest with God and that we are honest with the uncertainty of the circumstances that we are about to enter. Jacob is honest. No hiding or playing or re narrating. no, 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 this is who he is. That night, God responds to this honesty with what is absolutely one of the strangest encounters in Scripture. Jacob's prayed, he gets his affairs in order, and he waits. And this is what the text says. Genesis 32, starting at verse 24. Jacob stayed apart by himself. He's alone, hanging out. And a man wrestled with him until dawn broke. You think that's normal? Like he's just like, yeah, dude came up, grabbed me from behind, and we started throwing down. Regular Tuesday. When the man saw that he couldn't defeat Jacob, He grabbed Jacob's thigh or hip, depending on the translation that you're reading, and popped his hip socket or tore a muscle in Jacob's thigh as he wrestled with him. The man said, let me go because the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. He said to Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob, and he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name won't be Jacob any longer, but Israel. Because you struggled with God and with humans and have won. Jacob also asked and said, tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask for my name? And he blessed Jacob there. And so Jacob named the place Peniel because I have seen God face to face and my life has been saved. Then the sun rose as Jacob passed him there limping because of his thigh. The work of becoming who God intends us to be, the work of becoming whole and holy, of growing, of healing, and of transforming, rarely comes easy. It will often feel like a wrestling match with our past and ourselves and our futures, and even with God. Jacob is wrestling with his identity. Who he was, who he is, and who God is forming him into be. And he does not come out of this encounter unwounded. He walks with a limp. God does not fight fair, rude. This limp is like an external sign of the internal work Jacob is undergoing. Sometimes healing is like that. Jesus has his scars and Jacob his limp. But those wounds are not signs of defeat. For Jacob, his limp is an evidence of victory. That Jacob has confronted, contended, wrestled, and won. And he leaves that place with a new name, Israel. Israel. One who has wrestled and overcome. He's no longer known by his family of origins. He's no longer known by his mistakes. He's no longer known by that story that was written over him as a young person. No, He is now called a wrestler, a contender, and a victor. Who is now named by his creator and ready to meet his brother and his past, not in some fake truth or coercive control, but in truth and honesty and a rooted sense of who he is in God. I love this story. Because to me, it is such an evidence of grace and of God's constant work in our lives. It is the story of hard-fought work to become whole. In this story, we see that transformation is rarely easy. And that is such a gift to me because my own transformation has rarely felt easy. I am walking with a limp. And sometimes my story wants to write over that and say that that is a sign of weakness or disgrace or defeat. But it is none of those things. It is the evidence of hard and healing work. Having contended with the stories that have been written over me and overcome. It is a sign and evidence that God is at work within me Transforming me from one degree of glory to the next, from one degree of freedom to the next. You see, that's why we celebrate this story every week by coming to the table. Because we remember at this table, actually, that God does this same journey right alongside of us. Jesus enters the human story, wrestles with his identity all the way to the point of death and comes out victorious, but still wielding his scars. We take the bread and the cup of this moment because we remember that our God actually limps along with us on the journey of becoming who God intends us to be. So, Mister, I hope that today what you hear is that your story is not done. Your journey is not over. Your limp is not a sign of weakness, but of victory. And your God moves alongside with you, step by step into the work of love. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the story of Jacob. It just felt like such a gift to me when I am in the midst of my most like, difficult, contending struggles when I'm wrestling with my past and my future and my identity and my mistakes and my shame and all the things that are a part of my story. I thank you, God, that we can fight it. We can wrestle. We can contend. We can reclaim and reconcile, repair and heal and grow and be transformed. And yes, we'll carry a limp and some scars. But signs of the hard work and the grace of you. So God, would you empower us today to limp on in our story? Not in weakness, but in the confidence of you. Maybe that means that we have to meet our past and our older brothers like Jacob, or maybe that means we need to step into the uncertainty of our future. But would we limp on with you in the confidence and assurity that you go with us? God, help us know that you go with us. In your wonderful and holy name we pray. Amen.